Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 10th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, Our Good and Sovereign God, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Genesis chapters 42 through 50. Enjoy. We have been in the book of Genesis for a few, three, four months now. Uh, and the big things we've covered, we've covered more, four main events and four main characters. We talked about creation, we talked about the fall, we talked about a global flood, we talked about the Tower of Babel, and then we switched over to the patriarchs and talked about four main characters. We talked about the life of Abraham, the life of Isaac, the life of Jacob, and now we are talking about the life of Joseph. Last week, Joe and Franco, one of our elders, um, covered a big chunk of the life of Joseph, and today we're going to pick up where he left off and cover through the end of the book. Um, We're going to take a look at the forest, not the trees approach this morning. It's great to look at the trees and see all the detail and see how they're different and interesting and um, learn from those. It's really great even to step back and see the entire forest. And what I mean by that is develop a big theme, see the big picture of what's going on. And that's our goal this morning in the life of Joseph, is to see the big picture of what's going on in the life of Joseph so that we can see the big picture of what's going on in our lives as well. Now, if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph's the favorite son. Uh, His dad, Jacob, loved him a lot. He bought him a really fancy coat. It was a coat of many colors. His brothers didn't like this, so what did they do? They sold him. They were gonna kill him, but one of the brothers says, maybe let's not kill him because if we kill him, we can't turn a profit. Uh, Maybe we'll just sell him instead so we can get a little bit of cash out of the exchange. So they sell him. He ends up as a servant in a high-ranking official's house. Then he's falsely accused of a sex crime and ends up in prison, ends up interpreting different dreams. Now he's in Pharaoh's house. So he's gone from slave in Egypt to working in Pharaoh's house. And he's not just working in Pharaoh's house. The text actually tells us he's become the governor or a lead official, the ruler of Egypt. So we sold into the slavery, but now he has become governor of Egypt. If you backtrack real quick and look at Genesis chapter 41, verses 56 and 57, it sets the context for where we open in chapter 42. Chapter 41, 56, 57 says this. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to whom? To Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So the slave has turned into the top salesman, which gives us the context for where we're at this morning. There's three main points in your outline. Those are gonna serve as guides for our conversation over the course of the next nine chapters, and we'll draw some application from each. The first point in your bulletin is this, the testing of Joseph's brothers. The testing of Joseph's brothers. Now remember, these guys sold Joseph into slavery. They were going to kill him, but figured why not turn a prophet along the way, so they faked his death and sold him in to a foreign land, which opens up chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. It says this, when Jacob learned, this is the father of all the boys, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Which I love this. Because me and my brothers, when my dad was often doing a job and we stood by watching, he would say, what are you doing standing around? And this is essentially what Jacob says to his boys. Well, are you going to, hey, knuckleheads, are you going to 
try to figure this out. What are you gonna do? You're just gonna stand here and starve to death? This doesn't seem like a good plan. Verse two, and he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin. Uh, Joseph was the favorite, but Jacob's under the understanding that Joseph is dead, so he picks a new favorite. His new favorite is the youngest son, Benjamin. Jacob said, do not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared the harm that might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So this famine has spread all over the region. And who do they go to? They go to Egypt, and because they go to Egypt, who are they going to buy grain from? They're going to buy grain from the salesman of Egypt, and that salesman is their brother, Joseph. Um, So the story takes a really interesting turn here where we start to wonder, I wonder how this is going to go. Joseph has every right to retaliate, Um, No one knows Joseph's true identity. No one knows Joseph comes from the land of Canaan. So Joseph could very easily put his brothers to death because they probably deserve it for doing such an awful thing. Now, speaking of these tests, last week we saw that God oftentimes places pressure in our life to help us become the people we're meant to be. We talked about the wheat and the grain and the, the chaff and the grain and how God puts pressure on the chaff to separate that from the good parts. And that's the same thing we're gonna see this week. Just as God tested Joseph, God is going to use Joseph to test Joseph's brothers. The first test we see, we can call it the test of conscience the test of conscience. Joseph is testing them to see if they are repentant about selling their brother into slavery. Are they going to own up to the wrong that they did? Genesis 42, six through seven says this. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now does this ring a bell at all? If you rewind to chapter 37, remember Joseph had a dream and in this dream, everyone in his family bowed down on the ground to him. Chapter chapter 42 verse nine says that Joseph remembered the dreams as these things were happening. They're being fulfilled right in front of his eyes. Verse seven says Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers They are strangers, they're strangers to the land. They're from Canaan, but now they're in Egypt. They're strangers, they're foreigners, they're travelers in the land. And he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. Now he doesn't just sell them food. Remember, God's gonna use Joseph to apply some pressure on the lives of his brothers, so he's gonna put them to the test. He doesn't just sell the food, he doesn't give them food, he doesn't speak kindly, he actually speaks quite roughly and deals harshly with them. He actually goes as far as to say that they're spies. He says, you're not here to buy grain, you're here to see the nakedness of the land. And the brothers say, sir, we are honest men. Which like, really? (laughs) Are you really though? The story has shown them to not be such honest men to this point, but this is their claim. We're honest men. It seems like the test is a good thing for them because God's going to build some character. They insist they aren't spies, but Joseph doesn't want to hear it, so he throws all of them into prison for three days. Over the course of the three days, he devises a plan, doesn't really give them an option. He just says, here's the plan. I'm gonna take your brother Simeon, and I'm gonna put him in prison. You can take the food and bring it back to your father, and unless you come back with your younger brother Benjamin, 
Simeon's not getting out of jail. So he's setting this thing up in such a way where they have to come back. He lays out the plan, and the brothers really have no choice. In chapter, in chapter 42, verses 21 through 23, the brothers turn to one another, and they have this conversation. And of course, Joseph is looking on and listening. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They're realizing the guilt of their sin. They're realizing the judgment that God is now putting on them. And Reuben answered them like a good older brother would. I told you so. Didn't I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. The test of conscience has been passed. Joseph has looked on and heard the brothers admit their guilt to one another. Before they depart, Joseph has their bags packed full of food and grain, and because he wants to be a blessing and because he wants to provide for them, even though they've done him wrong, he takes the money that would have been used to pay for the grain, and he takes the money and puts it back inside their sack, and then he sends them back to the land of Canaan. They get home, and they open their, their sacks of grain in chapter 42, verse 35, and it says this, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid, right? Because what now? Was this just an oversight? The Egyptians are gonna think that we stole from them. This is a problem because if we ever wanna see our brother Simeon again, we're gonna have to face this Joseph guy who they don't know is their brother and all of Egypt and we're gonna have to reckon for this as well. That's the end of the first test. They pass the tests of conscience. The second test is the test for jealousy. We see it in chapter 43. It begins verse one through three. Now the famine was severe in the land and when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. I won't stand before you. I won't sell you grain. You won't see your brother Simeon again unless Benjamin comes to Egypt. Now again, Uh, Jacob, Father Jacob, does not like this idea because he already lost his first favorite son named Joseph and now he doesn't want to lose his new favorite son named Benjamin. So after much deliberation, consideration, and conversation, Jacob finally agrees to let little baby Ben go with the rest of the brothers. I also have a younger brother named little baby Benjamin, so that's fun to say. He's also the favorite. Oh, come on, man. We'll talk later, Mom and Dad, and Ben will talk later, too. Yeah, thank you. I don't even know where we are. The test for jealousy, that's where we are, friends. So he sends Benjamin with him. Upon their arrival, they were invited in to have a meal with Joseph, and their brother Simeon is returned. Now they're concerned, they think this is a trap, right? Um, This doesn't make any sense. The first time we met Joseph, he was really rude, he was really harsh. Um, Now he's suddenly inviting us in for a meal. What if he thinks we stole his money? He's just going to kill us, it's not adding up. So they sit down for a meal. Joseph is finally reunited with his full brother Benjamin, and he's overjoyed to see him to the point where he has to turn away, leave the room, so he can weep. He's so happy that it leads him 
to joyously cry. So where is the test? The test comes at the end of chapter 43. Genesis 43, verses 33 and 34. They say this, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. Right, so oldest to youngest is the way they sit down. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Now, um, the brothers are big on fair. Um, if, if you have kids at home, or if you remember when your kids were young and at home, fair is everything. We had a fight in our house this week, not about how much Lucky Charms were poured, but how many charms one kid had more than the other. It's just not fair. Right? But this is why we're, we're wired the same way. It's not just Lucky Charms. We look around at the stuff other people have, and, well, why not me? Why can't I? And we, we do this. It's just not fair that they have this and they have that. And that's what Joseph is testing them for. See, because Joseph was the favorite. Joseph had the most. And when the other brothers saw Joseph had the most, they got rid of Joseph. So now he sets this out. 11 brothers in a row, oldest to youngest, same amount, same amount, same amount, same amount, same amount, all the way down the line to favorite brother Ben. And he gets five times as much food. What are they going to do now? because the situation that's been laid out in front of them is not fair. He's testing to see if they're still jealous. At the end of verse 34, it says this, and they drank and were merry with him. They just had a good time. There was no jealousy. They were just happy to be together. And if you have a large family, you know what it's like to just be together and have fun together. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that we see happening in chapter 43. They've passed the test of jealousy. In chapter 44, we see the test for loyalty. We see the test for loyalty. Chapter 44, verses one and two says this, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, just like we did this before. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So they give them all their grain back. They give them all the money back. And then he takes this nice, fancy silver goblet. Think of like a big, cool chalice type of cup. And they put it inside Benjamin's bag, the the most favorite little brother. They put it inside Benjamin's Benjamin's bag. And then he sends them away. He says, go ahead and bring your food back. Um, Say hi to your dad for me on the way. And then he sends the servant to go after them. And when they go after them, they make all these accusations and they say, how could you do this? Our our master treated you so well. He treated you with kindness. He treated you with grace. He threw you a feast and, and you ate together and drank together and it was a wonderful time. How could you do such a thing as steal his silver cup? And all the brothers are like, we don't know what you're talking about. We've got no idea. They even go to the point where they say, if we have it, you can kill the thief and the rest of us will become your servants. Not a good promise to make. So again, they line them up, oldest to youngest, just like they did with the meal, and they start searching the bag, not in the oldest, and they go all the way down. And you can feel the drama building as this thing happens, right? Because as the next one opens, you're like, oh, maybe he didn't, maybe he did it. And then there's a sense of relief. And then it goes to the next brother, and there's this again, maybe he did it, maybe. And it gets all the way down to Benjamin, and Benjamin's perfect and can never do anything wrong, and everything's wonderful, and the little sweet life of little baby brother Benjamin, right? So we... (laughs) I'm just kidding, man. I love you. It's all good. Right? 
I'm just telling the story, not my story. I'm telling the story, right? So it gets down to the last bag, and what do they find? They find the silver cup. The brothers are so grieved, it says this, they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. When they get back to Joseph's house, Joseph is there waiting, um, kind of like your mom after you go off to prom and you come back and mom's still awake. How did it go, honey? Um, That's kind of like Joseph here. He's up waiting for the brothers to return. They stand before Joseph and what they basically say is they say, we're all guilty. Let all of us be your servants. Let all of us serve you, right? Because the deal was you can kill the one who stole it. The rest will serve. And then Joseph says, no, only the one who stole it will be punished. The rest of you can leave. Only leave Benjamin behind. Now, this poses more problems, right? Because um, Benjamin is Jacob's favorite son. And Jacob already made the comment, if you take my son with you and he doesn't come back, I will die, Now here's where we see some of this pressure that God's putting on the life of these brothers start to develop some character in their life. Judah, uh, remember him, he had some really bad parts of his just character that we've seen throughout um, Genesis so far. He stands before Joseph and speaks kindly and speaks with grace and he just, he recaps the story and he says, listen, master, Lord, Um, If I don't have my brother back, my father will die. And Joseph says, I mean, it is what it is. I'm sorry, this is what you said you wanted to happen, so this is what we're gonna do. Uh, But he even goes to the place where he says, what if I would take his place? This was the one who said, let's just sell him off. Now he's saying, no, I'll I'll be the stand-in. I'll be the substitute. I'll be the one who takes his place. Let him free, and I'll go instead. Um, We kind of get a little picture of Jesus there, don't we? Right, we talk about the Lion of Judah, Like that's kind of what this is talking about. Judah has really changed. He sold his brother last time. Now he's willing to take his place. We see they've passed the test of loyalty. So at this point, Joseph has issued three tests. Conscience, will they own their past mistakes and own up to them? Jealousy, do they still act in sin out of their jealous hearts? And loyalty, will they stand by one another instead of selling each other out. Now, what can we learn from this part of the story? What, what can we possibly apply from our life? Well, have you ever heard that saying, um, trust is earned, but forgiveness is freely given? Um, that's kind of what we see here. One of the reasons Joseph is doing this so he can see if he can trust his brothers because the past has proven these brothers are not to be trusted. Right? There's a reasons we have locks and cameras on our homes. It's because there's people we just don't trust. And when they earn their trust, they're allowed to come into our life. This is kind of what Joseph is doing. But he freely forgives them. He's gracious towards them, but causes them to earn his trust. Why would God be doing this? Well, just like God applied pressure to Joseph's life to work on his character, he also applies pressure to the life of the brothers. Joseph is ready to move forward. His heart is broken. His brothers are open, and he's ready to reconcile with his family. That's the second point of our outline this morning the reconciliation of Jacob's family. We're gonna move a little closer or a little faster through these next two, um, just so you know. The reconciliation of Jacob's family. Now you'd think it'd be a good thing to find out that this guy has been your brother the whole time, um, but realizing the context of the last time you saw him was when you sold him off as a slave, it might make the situation worse. Right, because now he has the opportunity, do I retaliate or do I reconcile? Genesis 45, verses four through eight, up on the screen for you, it says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. So like in case we forgot about the story, I'm Joseph, last time we saw each other, it was when you tried to kill me but instead sold me as a slave. Verse five, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. It'd be easy to be stressed out. It'd be easy to be angry over our actions. Listen to this statement. Because you sold me here, for God sent me. Don't be distressed. Don't be worried. Why? You sold me, but God sent me. This is one of those paradigm shift moments that the Christian should live their life in. This is the paradigm we are meant to live. Even though one sells, it's God who sent. Even though it's a bad situation that looks like it brings him somewhere, Joseph is saying, no, see, you feel like you sold me, but actually this was God orchestrating the situation the entire time. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse eight says this, so it, is, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. It's, it just, it's, it's paradigm shattering is what this is. Right, that, that we'll, we'll see it said later that what one person means for evil, God actually means for good. It's one of the many promises we can rest in as believers, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. Immediately after disclosing his identity to his brothers, he said, how's my dad? How's my dad? How's my dad? Go get my dad and bring him back. Here, Genesis 45, 14 and 15 says this, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What a conversation that would have been, right? How you guys doing? You know I was in jail, right? You just wonder what catching up would have been like. I imagine it as like telling hunting or fishing stories around a fire where you're just every little detail and it's, it, the story gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's such a wonderful thing to just be with brothers and share what's been going on in life. Chapter 46, the family gathers all of their possessions and goes to Egypt with 70 people in all. Genesis 46, verse 29, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Remember, the father previously had thought, thought that Joseph had been um, eaten by a ravenous animal. So to find out that your son is alive, to find out that your son is alive and doing really pretty good is a good thing for Jacob. Jacob and Joseph were reunited. The family is back together. Chapter 47, Joseph goes in and tells Pharaoh, hey, my father's here, my brother's here. Um, they're shepherds. Uh, Pharaoh calls an audience with them, speaking with them, and says, what do you guys do? And, and he says, we're shepherds. And Pharaoh says, well, if you're shepherds, go ahead and take this land, the best land that I have to offer. And because you're shepherds, would you also consider taking care of my uh, my fields, my crops, my everything, my animals, would you take care of all of them as well? Things start to go really well for the family as soon as they show up. Now, what are some application points we can learn from this part of the story? I think a lot of it has to do with perspective, right? Because we look at the story and see Joseph forgive his brothers for doing like a really egregious thing. Like he said, it's not cool to sell your family off. Not cool. He's got every right 
to retaliate. Instead, he chooses reconciliation. How could he do such a thing even though he's been sinned against so wrongly? It comes down to his perspective. He understands that even someone's sinful action, God is using for good. That God is sovereign over the entire situation. So if God is able to use these 11 knuckleheaded brothers who sold one guy off to work out for something good, surely Joseph can step back, look look at the perspective, and say if God can do all of this, if God can use these evil decisions to do something good, then surely I can forgive my brother's friends. I think if we changed our perspective up a little bit, forgiveness would be a lot easier because we'd understand even the evil things that people do against us, God is using for good. It comes down to perspective. The third thing we see in our text this morning is the death of Jacob and Joseph. This is from chapters 48 through 50. The death of Jacob and Joseph. There's really two main sections here. There's first Jacob blessing his sons and then his death and then there's Joseph blessing and encouraging his family and then his death. Look at Genesis 48 verses three and four with me. This is Jacob blessing Joseph and all of his sons following. Genesis 48 verse three says this, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. It's an interesting thing. The last things he says to his family have to do with the promises of God. The last thing a parent chooses to give to his children here is the assurance that God will do what God says he will do, that we can always trust God that even when our situations and circumstances don't look like God is going to come through, we can rest assured that God makes good on his promises every time. Shortly after this, it says he breathes his last and then Jacob dies. All of Egypt weeps for him for 70 days. You can see what a man of influence he was, that a foreigner in a different land would cause people to weep for two months. The second thing we see is the death of Joseph. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 18. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they get fearful again, right? Because now that dad's gone, maybe brother's gonna behave the way he actually wants to. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. And we don't know if he said this or not, but this is what they claim because they're honest men, right? Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why? He's forgiven them. He's he's moved on past this. Has he not shown that he loves them? Has he not shown that he cares for them? His brothers also came in and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Look again at his response in verse 19, says this, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of judgment? Am I in the one to call the shots in the situation? As for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't play that down. He says, you meant this for evil. 
What you did was wrong. What you did was sinful. What you did should not have been done. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And then he follows up with this, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We've visited this verse a lot of times over the course of our study in Genesis because it's not just a verse we should, should visit over the course of our time in Genesis. It's a verse we should visit over the course of our entire life, day in and day out. The constant reminder that even in situations where people mean evil against us, that God means it for good. Whether it's someone directing something evil directly at you or whether it's a situation we see as such going on in Haiti, when someone means something for evil, it means that God is doing something for good. Friends, we serve a good God and because he is a good God, he has a good, good plan. I wanna close this morning with just some encouragements from uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs and some other scriptures as well uh, and just break down this statement. Our God is good and he has a good plan. The scriptures are full of this. Psalm 34 verse eight says this, oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We make judgments based on good and bad all the time, don't we? How was the food, honey? Eh, good. How was the movie? Bad. How was the game? Good. How was your day? Bad. The only option for good all the time, if I were to ask you the question, how is your God, the only answer is good. He is good all the time. Even when life is bad, God is good. Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. In just a moment, we're gonna close in a worship song where we sing about the goodness of God. I'd encourage you to actually think about the goodness of God as we respond in praise. Our God is good and he has a plan for good. Proverbs 19 verse 21 says this, many are the plans in the mind of a man. How many planners do we have in the church this morning? It's okay. God, nowhere in the scriptures does God say never have a plan. He just says people make plans and then God does his thing. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. When we give our lives to Jesus, we don't just give our sin over to Jesus, we give everything over to Jesus. We give our convictions, we give our emotions, we give our plan, we give our purpose, we give our mission, we give our meaning, we give our identity. Everything, when we give our life to Jesus, we give to Jesus. That includes our plan. The scriptures say we make our plan, but the purpose of the Lord is what will stand. And I'm grateful for this because I've realized in my life I often have my own way in mind, but I found that God's way is better every time. Jeremiah 29, 11, Jeremiah speaking to the Israelites says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. God doesn't look down at our life and be like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) That came out of left field. Like, that's no, I have a plan for your life. 
He looks down and sees this thing that he's orchestrating. It's something that works out for our good, something that works out for our benefit. And good and benefit doesn't always mean nice things, doesn't always mean nice life. Like it's great for Joseph that okay, he had that, t- that little stint in prison for that false accusation stuff. But on the other end of it, he came out a pretty wealthy dude. This end of the story is not a promise for us. What's good is not always good stuff. What's good is good character. What's good is a good God. What's good is a knowing and having a deeper relationship with the God who saved me from my sins. That when bad things are going on in my life, I'm introduced even more to a good, good God. Romans 8.28 to close says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back out. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, it might be the bad situation of someone meaning evil against you or it might just be a poor situation happening in your life. The promises of the scriptures is this. God is actively involved in orchestrating a wonderful plan for our lives that we couldn't ask for or even imagine. It's why at the end of Jacob's life, he looks at his sons and he says, you can trust God. It's why at the end of Joseph's life, he looks at his brothers and he says, brothers, we can trust God. Friends, it's been the message the entire time through the story of Genesis. And I think it's because it's the type of thing we need to be reminded of all the time. Our God is good And our God has a good plan for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Our good and sovereign God, we thank you for your gracious plan for our life. God, your way is better. Your will is better. Help us trust you. Help us live for you. Help us serve you. Help us love you. God, for the situations going on in the lives of many in the church this morning, whether it's someone meaning evil for them or just a bad situation for the life, God, I ask that you would um, just give us the eyes to see you, that you give us the ears to hear you, give us the heart to know you, the mind to know that you're there, God, that we could see you moving and active in our life. God, we trust in your promises this morning. We trust that for those who love you, all, all things work together for good and they work out for our good, but even more, God, they work out for your glory. God, would you be glorified, honored, and praised now as we respond in worship. We love you, and all God's people said. Hey, let me real quick invite you back to make sure you're in service next week. Pastor Bob is gonna do a recap over our entire um, series in Genesis. You're not gonna wanna miss that. Um, We're gonna have a prayer team down front for you. If you'd love to follow Jesus anywhere, maybe for the first time, or recommit to following him today, Um, Our prayer team will be down front. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you. Other than that, Highlands Church, we serve a good, good God. Amen? Amen. And when it comes to our life, he has a good, good plan. Would we trust him? Would we serve him? Would we love one another? Have a good week, guys. Bye-bye.